I actually believe that innovation is a conflict-based system that we need to have different, in some cases, very, very different points of view in the room. And we need to know how to argue where what I feel has happened is a lot of times we're taking the true argument out of the room because we don't want conflict. And the reality is what we really need to do is start bringing my, my, and some of the teams we work with, we bring debate into the team. You tell me why we need to kill this. You tell me why we need to move forward. And I don't care which side you're on. You just have to build the case. And, and so what you start to realize is by having, I always say contrast creates meaning. And so if I actually have two really different perspectives on it, I'm going to understand it way better than if I only have one on it. Hi, everyone. I'm Fabio, the host of the Shaping Chaos podcast. And today I'm so grateful to have uh, Bob Messer with me. Uh, Bob is an innovator and he's also the founder and president of the Rewired Group, uh, a company that specializes in innovation. Uh, he's also one of the principal architects of the Jobs Be Done theory, which is a theory that led me to Bob when I was listening to this, this trainer, the founder of Intercom, in a YouTube video uh, years ago. Bob, is this a good introduction to what you do, or do you want to add something? Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yes. My thing is, is besides being an innovator, I, I, I like mm -hmm. to build things. I've always been a builder. And to be honest, uh, I've, I've uh, over the years, I've become a, a teacher as well. So those are the big things that I like to do and what I, what I spend most of my time doing and why I love to come on podcasts is be able to help and yeah. teach. So one of the questions I ask on this podcast is it's always the same. And the question I want to ask you is when you are creating products on, or when you're helping someone creating products, have you ever faced a very chaotic situation? And how did you handle with that? Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. So chaos to me is, I got a very, very special definition. And so, um, so I read a book uh, called uh, the making of a new science uh, mm -hmm. chaos and by James click. And I, I, re I listened to it and, and it really gets to this underlying notion that uh, things are really not chaotic, right? We, we see them at the first order to be very mm -hmm. chaotic, but there's an underlying equation. There's an underlying system or process that, causes things to actually be feel chaotic and so to me when things are chaotic what it means is, is i need to take a step back and understand the fundamentals mm -hmm. and see what's really happening what's going on and then understand the the causation behind things and so to me when things seems to be like very very chaotic like we're in the middle of a pandemic right and so part of this is most people will see the system that they had, the plan that they had for 2020 yeah. out the window. But the reality is, is that at some point it's the universe telling us we have to think of a, you know, a, a new way to, to, to work. And so to be honest, it's now taking a step back and saying, all right, what are the new fundamentals that mm -hmm. are in place when things become so yeah. chaotic? So to me, it's, it's, um, it's, it's always, uh, is, is horrible as a pandemic is, the fact is, is it's always a, a chance uh, to basically take that step back and kind of almost reassess or start over or start fresh or um, understand the new building blocks that are in place because there's a new equation that's at play. That's a great definition. One of the things that um, for me it, it's it's crucial it's it's crucial to understand is 
which kind of questions do we have to ask when we want when we go through something chaotic like this? Like it seems to me that when the the quality of the questions that you ask also um, define the quality of the output of something that you're trying to achieve. So, and I've seen a lot of managers asking the right the wrong questions, but I always wondered what are the good questions that one should ask when when facing something like this. So what's interesting is right, right and wrong, the wrong questions are only wrong in exactly. hindsight, yeah. not in foresight, right? And so this is this is where it becomes difficult. Um, for me, I having, um, so when I was 18 years old, I had an internship with a gentleman by the name of Dr. Deming, and he mm. basically um, taught me causation. I had no idea what it really meant or anything about it, but uh, between him and Dr. Taguchi and many mentors, um, I started to realize that that good questions relate to causation and, and building mm-hmm. theory. Right? So there's like what what Deming would say is there's no there's no knowledge, right? Without without okay. theory, and the fact is is you can't get to theory without mm-hmm. good questions. And so part of it is to understand, for example, what is an effect and what is a mm-hmm. cause, and what and the difference between correlation and causation. And so to me. I'm listening all the time, for example, in meetings, people will say, well, you know, we need to have trust. And I'll say, all right, is trust an input to the situation or is it actually an output of the situation? And they'll say, well, what's the difference? I'll say, well, if trust is an input, then I can only do it with people I already have trust with. But if trust is an output of the situation, then I have to cause trust in this Mm -hmm. meeting. So how do I cause trust? And so part of it is being able to understand the causation of things. And so I believe the most really good questions seek to kind of reveal the underlying causation. Mm-hmm. The other part is that it's it's not just about simple causation. One, you do this thing and it causes trust, for example. It's, no, I have to do these five things. And so part of it is understanding the complexity, mm-hmm. right, of the situation or the complexity of the variables and also understanding what I would say are the difference between control factors, things I can control or things that I have influence on, and noise, which are things that influence it but I have mm-hmm. no control over so for me, good questions relate to this notion of seeing the world as systems and understanding cause and effect and understanding your realm of influence. And so just knowing that it's raining outside is, you know, doesn't really help because the fact is I can't control whether mm-hmm. it rains or not. But but understanding what we do when it rains is going to be more important. So it's these kinds of things where trying to frame questions that relate to the outcome or the output we're trying yeah. to get to. And what are the underlying causal factors to get there? Why is it so difficult to reveal the the causation effect? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question too. Um, Well, I think I think first of all that that a lot of times we think about causation in a in a very simplistic way, which is um, you know one cause, one effect. We'll say root cause, or you know. So, what's the root cause of this problem? Why did you buy this new car? And you'll say, well, I got a great deal on Mm -hmm. it. But that's not what caused you to buy a new car. It's a set of causes. And so it's the, the complexity of one is there's things that happen to you through time. Mm-hmm. You know, six months ago, this happened. And four months ago, that happened. And all of a sudden, these things lined up. And it's like, okay, now it's time for a car. And you're like, oh, I bought it because it was a good deal. And it's like, no, but all those other things had contribution to actually you buying a new car. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is, is it's difficult to get to causation because of we don't see ourselves moving through time. We think of things as very static. Yeah. And so we only think of 
thing that causes us at the moment to buy the car as the cause to buy the car, as opposed to the causes or the root causes or the, the you know, the fishbone diagram or the, or the roots of the, of the tree that basically got us to say, today's the day we're going to buy a new car. Mm-hmm. So part of this requires a much different level of conversation um, than a survey or a standard question or a pulling from a set of answers. And so to me, it's, it's a very different set. The, the other part of it is that there's, I call there's, there's three different kinds of energy that motivate people to basically do something new or, or to change, right? To buy a new product, right? And, and it's what I call social, emotional, and functional. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I do things because how others perceive me, that's social. Emotional is, um, I have something inside me that I want to actually make sure either happens or doesn't happen. So that I'm motivated or it's functional, which is something I do. Mm-hmm. And, and part of it is how does all that connect? So I think it's very difficult to find the underlying causation without, I'll say, some good interrogation. Yeah. Right? And it's a set of methods. And the way I look at it is I got to look at a problem from like a whole bunch of different mm-hmm. angles, right? To be able to kind of say, what is the causation as opposed to what's the one thing? Yeah. But so to me, it's, it's really a, I, I, I'm a, so I'm a dyslexic. And so for me, I think in math terms, so everything's a set. So what's the set of causes? What's the set of questions? What's the set of things that make us understand what causation is? And so that's kind of where I come from. That's really interesting because one of the um, one of the underlying principles of of the jobs to be done uh, theory, um, from my understanding, of course, is that it's the definition says that a job is the progress that someone is trying to do or trying to bring to their life in a specific circumstance, right? Um, so, and there's also a, a methodology that you refer to called the pull and push mechanisms. And I've been thinking recently about this because of the anxiety that people have in by not knowing what's going to happen in the next year or the next three months or the next month. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, yep. So are we, are we like um, as companies or as individuals uh, anxious to bring new stuff to, to our lives and pulling away like innovation and pulling away uh, other things? Um, or is this kind of a, a new opportunity to push new things into our lives and completely forget the other ones? I think the, the way that, that I look at it is that um, the struggling moment is the, thing, is, the, is the underlying mechanism that basically causes you to start to look for something else. So when you can't do what you used to do, mm-hmm. so in the pandemic, now we can't go to work. We have to work from home where before, let's say, working virtually was a reference point was, well, it has to be as good as working at work. But now virtual working has to be as good as working or as good as not working at all. Mm-hmm. So it just has to be better than not working. And so all of a sudden you start to realize having your kids run through the background or you know, having a dog barking isn't a big deal. <laughs> Where before I would never have that at work. And so people would be very judgmental and worried about people doing these other things. And so it's the struggling moment that sets the quality of the standard by which people want to actually do something. And so my thing is, is, and it changes what I call the reference point. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so to me, 
I don't think we're pushing things. I think people, so, so I think there's two sides to innovation. There's a supply side where I have, I have a, I have an innovation and I want you to use it, but there's a demand side, which is you wanting to make progress in your life. And so I don't believe that we can really push innovations on people. I think people have to choose to innovate themselves. Mm -hmm. And so part of this is really about flipping that lens to saying, Hey, I got this great technology that can do all these things. Mm -hmm. And for, to know what progress does somebody want to make and how does this technology enable them to make that progress. Yeah, yeah. And so and so to me, in the pandemic, um, we have lots of struggling, struggling moments. How do I teach my kids from home? How do I, you know, how do I get groceries? How do I, so all of these things where people say, boy, I'm trying a lot of new things. Well, they're trying because the reference point for what they can do has changed, mm-hmm. which creates a new struggling moment. And so to me, it's a great time to be innovating. But what I think is we need to actually think about not what can we do from a technology perspective, but what can we do to help people make progress? So one of the things that I've been uh, realizing, and especially here because education is not very um, digital yet, uh, but yes. I see a lot of uh, teachers struggle, and I have teachers in my family, so they struggle to use technology, and they also struggle to use the technology to deliver the right message. And on the other side, you have kids that know exactly how to use technology, and sometimes they just say, oh, I'm going to just pretend that I'm here and I'm not. Um, so I wonder if this, um, if this, uh, the COVID situation just keeps um, staying with us forever and it's going to be the new normal, um, how can we introduce innovation at scale when, for example, teachers are so reluctant to use technology because they've never used technology in their lives to, to, to do the lectures? That's not how they were taught, right? That's not their way, right? So, so the real question, though, is, is who's the consumer of schools? Okay. Uh-huh. So, so where, who, who are we trying to make progress for? Uh-huh. Schools would not exist without students. And so part of this is that we have to actually start by innovating to say, where are the students and how do we actually enable the students to make progress? It's kind of like if I, if I go to a hospital and I talk about like, how do we, how do we make progress for the hospital? What happens is that it's about saving money. It's about being more efficient. Mm-hmm. It's about being those kinds of things. But the reality is, is the, the real role of the hospital is for patients. Okay. So what we really need to focus on is patients first or students first, mm-hmm. and then figure out how to actually satisfy them and help them make progress. Okay. Right. And so part of this is that school has not necessarily been designed from the student perspective. In a lot of cases, it's been designed from the teacher perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and so, again, there's a notion of, let's say, a pedagogy, which is the way in which you the best way to teach a subject. OK. But the, the best way to teach a subject is very different than how you learn the subject, because you learn differently than I mm-hmm. learn. And so all of a sudden, there is no one way to actually teach best. Yeah because it's got to be actually towards the child or towards the student. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of this is to realize, like, we have to be able to focus on how do we actually enable students to make more progress? And then, then how do we actually then help teachers understand the role that technology helps them become better educators mm-hmm. to help the students make progress? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not about the teachers, it's about the students. Yeah. That's a great insight. Right. And so this is, this is, this is, this is the same thing where you end up um, trying to realize that like, there are what we call nested kind of situations where the buyer of something mm-hmm. is not the user of something. So like if a company buys Salesforce, it's typically the VP of sales, the 
chief revenue officer, or it might be the CFO who buy it, but it's the salespeople who have to use it. And so you have to actually understand how to design it for both. Because if I just design it for the for the you know the the, the executives who buy it, the reality is is like at some point the salespeople end up selling less. And they have to sell more. And so you have to think about designing at those two different levels simultaneously mm-hmm. and understanding the trade-offs that have to be made. And then which one has to actually kind of has more control over the other yeah. one. So, so my belief is if students actually start to make more progress, teachers will actually learn how to actually teach differently. But if they don't make any more progress, teachers will just teach the way they've been teaching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think students are the key. That's really interesting because, like before we started, I was talking to you about um, the problems of uh, agencies trying to create innovation, and one of the things that that just made me realize is that, for example, in the design world, we have this concept of uh, the user first or uh, the user centric uh, design. But usually, when you are an agency, what you're designing for is for the client that is buying the the, the solution that you provide. That's right. So are we, um, like, as designers and product designers and inventors and just designing for the buyer rather than the user? <laughs> well, I think, I think that's the thing is that we need to be very specific about who, not only who, but where and when okay. are we actually designing for. Uh-huh. And so to me, like, like uh, a company doesn't have a job to be done. A person has a job to be mm-hmm. done, Right. And so part of it is to understand the people that we're designing for and what does progress look like for each of them. And so, so to me, the thing is, is though, for example, an executive might want to say, I want to be able to grow sales with my new website. Mm-hmm. The fact is, is then you have to be able to understand then what's the progress that people are trying to make who are coming to the website. So it's not their opinion. It's basically your understanding of the progress that the, the, the actual users are trying to make. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is, is to highlight the trade-offs between what, the executive thinks and what the consumer thinks. That's very interesting. Right. And so part of this is, is that, that I think we sometimes don't go deep enough to understanding that causation. And a lot of times we're still using correlation, which is, you know, these two things correlate. So this, if I just get more, if I get more people to the website, they'll buy more. Mm -hmm. And that's, that, that's, that's very superficial. My thing is, is what causes them to come to the website and what, because I can get more people, but if they're coming for the wrong reason, they're not going to buy more. Right. That's very true. And like, just keeping on this uh, topic, what, what is the most uh, significant barrier for innovation? Wow. That's, that's a big question. Um, I think, I think there are, there are several, but I think the, the, you know, so one of them is, um, like one of the biggest one is past success. Okay. If you've been very, very successful with one thing, what happens is it's very hard to give up on that thing. For example, when the pandemic change, change happens. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, we're just going to wait for this to come back or we're going to modify what we have to basically get there. And so I think one of the greatest barriers to true innovation is, is, is success. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think at the same time, the fact is, is, is so, so for example, that's what to me Clay's, Clay Christensen's whole premise of the innovator's dilemma is about, which is people can come in at the low end um, and, and disrupt you because you have success, been mm-hmm. successful at the, at the higher end of the market. Mm-hmm. Right? I, think the, I think the second is, um, to, to be honest, uh, the, the notion of um, uh, 
what happens at consensus? I think consensus is a really big barrier to true innovation. Okay. In, in my experience of over 3,500 different products and services and everything else, but the notion of trying to build consensus around a true innovation has never worked. <laughs> and so people keep thinking like everybody should have input and everybody should be treated equal as we look at an innovation. But the fact is, is the the new person who never really hears anything or be like, you know, I like purple. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, so you like purple, but that doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about kind of mm-hmm. thing. So you start to realize that it's not saying that we, that we don't need to listen to people, but but the reality is the decisions to make things and, and understanding kind of the role that people play to make, make innovations. Innovation is a very hard thing and requires a lot of deep thinking and requires trade-offs that, you know, are, are essential to being great. And mm-hmm. so that is, is a level of maturity to me that, that doesn't usually come from a consensus kind of team, if you will. Yeah. So, or, or it, to be honest, it, it, it would require a, a different definition of consensus where, you know, you can support it, but it's, it's like you don't necessarily agree with it, but you can support it. And so one of those things is I think that, that trying to make sure you please everybody, you end up with something that's unrealistic and you're putting 10 pounds of stuff into a five pound bag that you can't ever get done. So, mm-hmm. so to me, it's that, that's the other kind of, uh, yeah, yeah. that I think are the two bigger ones. I'm sure I have more, but the, I think it gets to the point. I'm actually wondering, what's your take on on uh, changing um, an organization from a consensus base to what are you proposing? How can you do that? Because yeah. we are so ingrained into this way of doing things that everyone has to agree, everyone has to uh, follow this lead. So I, I actually believe that 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 innovation is a is a is a is a is a conflict-based system that we need to have different, in some cases, very, very different points of view in the room. And we need to know how to argue Mm -hmm. where what I feel has happened is a lot of times we're taking the true argument out of the room because we don't want conflict. And the reality is what we really need to do is start bringing my, my, and some of the teams we work with, we bring debate into the Mm -hmm. team. You tell me why we need to kill this. You tell me why we need to move forward. And I don't care which side you're on. You just have to build the case. And and so what you start to realize is by having, I always say, contrast creates meaning. Mm-hmm. And so if I actually have two really different perspectives on it, I'm going to understand it way better than if I only have one on it. And so to me, it's this aspect of, of teaching people how to argue in a very, um, uh, I'll say, uh, trusted environment. Mm-hmm that enables you to say what you think and feel and at the same time allows you to basically get the things out, um, but but be able to actually understand the questions you're trying to answer. Yeah. So, so to me, and, and what I would say, it starts, it starts in two different ways. One is from the top down. When people can see the senior team wrestling and arguing about things but coming to a conclusion of what they have to do and move mm-hmm. on, and also, I've seen it happen at the at, at a team level, and then kind of move up. And so, both ways, I think it's this aspect of being able to have way more meaningful discussions, mm-hmm. way more deeper discussions. And most people don't have time to do the deep thinking about work. They they spend more time doing work and rework yes. than they do actually doing 
thinking. And, and Jason Fried, um, who's somebody we work with a lot, or you know, the, the guys at base camp, they'll, they'll say, you know, at some point, real work takes three, four, five hours of deep, independent thinking time. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, when do you get that kind of deep thinking? It doesn't happen at work. Yeah. And so part of this is giving people freedom to be able to understand where they do their work and how they do their work, as opposed to just seeing the work as coding, for example. Mm-hmm. So that's not coding is like, I feel like uh, 80% of what people code doesn't get into the final code. It's all rework, right? But we got to manage the most expensive resource, which is programmers, but we don't give them the time. And them sitting there thinking is not productive time mm-hmm. to them because productivity is measured by lines of code written in a day. Yeah, yeah, Ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. So one of the concepts that you've been, I've been following the discussion that you are having with uh, Ryan Singer from basically yeah. as well. And yeah. there's one concept that I, I'm curious, but I, I cannot understand very well, which is the, the idea of walls and the idea of using walls to define problems and um, or even using time walls to define uh, whatever you were trying to achieve. So where does this come from and uh, how can we use the walls to, to probably define better pro- problems and better propositions? So this comes from um, the really studying how projects get done. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing is, is if it's a truly innovative product or innovation, innovative project, the, the, the tasks you generate in the beginning are what we call imagined tasks. Okay. You imagine what's possible. You imagine what has to happen. And so what happens is then we budget our time to fit those imagined tasks. But the reality is, is that if it's and 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 when we're judged on how well we meet our timeline, we typically then don't think of things that are so innovative because we have to know what tasks to do. But most projects have a set of unknowns. And those unknowns require actually a whole set of discovered tasks that you don't actually figure out until you're in the middle of the project. Mm-hmm. And so part of this is, is being able to understand the full package of what you're committing to when you're doing a project. And so it's this aspect of being able to say, like, look, I have this many projects, this many tasks, but I think we're going to have, have these unknowns and you're going to have some amount of un, um, discovered tasks. And given that amount of work, we're only going to be able to do this much in this period of time. Mm-hmm. The, the other part of it is this aspect of a time wall is when people know they can get more things, more time, more money, more people, those discover tasks then just make the bet bigger. Mm-hmm. They don't force you to make trade-offs. Mm-hmm. And so the time wall itself is really, really focused on forcing you to say what's in and what's out. Mm-hmm. What do I do in this this cycle to make sure that I can make the progress we're trying to make? And what do I actually lop off from a scope perspective as opposed to trying to make, quote, the best product? And so to me, and again, I learned this when I was 18, is that it's the Pareto principle of, you know, 20% of the causes that get me 80% Mm -hmm. of the results, right? But if I do that under two iterations, the first one, I go from 20 to 80 and a second iteration, I go from 80 to 96. A third iteration, I go from 96 to 100 and, or to a 99.9. Mm-hmm. And so we're always better off doing iterations than trying to build the best product in the first iteration, right? And so to me, the fact is, is being able to understand and make those trade-offs is really, really important. When when the time wall, what like so think of it as you, you have a wall yeah. here, and as you get closer and closer and closer, there's pressure. 
And that pressure then causes you to say, like, should we do this or not? Or, okay, how do we actually fix this problem? And you start to realize you're going to make very different sets of trade-offs than if you if there's no wall at yeah, all. Yeah. Right? And so part of this is that you understand how to be more productive. And it's usually the 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 the, the, the I'll say the, the trivial many are the things that you can't make the trade-offs on that literally you've had the basic there the entire time, but you can't let it go because it needs to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And my thing is, is we'll do that in the next iteration. Oh, that's great. All right. And so, so we've, so I'm building right now two, two software products and we're using shape up to use both of them. And to be honest, the amount of progress that we've made is just amazing so fast. And the, the, the team itself, um, like not, not telling them what to build, but shaping what, what the outcomes are, enable them to kind of have the freedom and flexibility that they're, they're like, so creative within the moment it's just it's been phenomenal is it more about having uh more iterations at a time or is it more about having longer time longer span i i I think it's about so so the way that that i i usually work in 90 day cycles on both on projects and things like that ryan and the guys basically work six week cycles with two weeks off so it's a two-month cycle um, my thing is, is that I feel like, um, I think each company has its own resonance. Like what is the right amount of time? But the, the reality is, is that at some point in time, I know a week is too short because there's not enough meaningful work you can do in, in a week. But I also know that a year is too long and a quarter might be like for the work I do, a quarter is fast enough. So I think it's, I think it's very relevant to the context that you're in as opposed to kind of there's a, there's a, there's a prescribed answer. So one of the things that I always always uh, was interested to understand was uh, what makes the jobs theory so difficult for people to use because it's so revealing and it it's so um, simple when it's, when it comes to questions it has it asks questions that reveals the answers to you when you when you uh, when you give it the right effort and when you are willing to, to take the, the right efforts to, to do it. What makes it so difficult to integrate in a team? <laughs> yeah, so I think part of it has to do with this notion of hypothesis. Hmm. So I think of jobs as um, hypothesis building research. Okay. And so I, I, I go into it with this notion of that I have no hypotheses. I have no idea why you bought a car. Hmm. None. Your story is very, very unique. It's very, and, and I don't know the important dominoes that had to fall and whether it was social, emotional, or functional. Like I just, all I know is you, all I know is you did buy a car, mm-hmm. right? And so, so to me, most people do research when, in a way that I call it uh, verification research, meaning I've got a, I've got a hypothesis. I'm going to go prove that this hypothesis is right, mm-hmm. right? And so you're listening for your hypotheses. And so I think what is like very Zen-like in the aspect of like, it's an empty vessel that we're going to fill up with your story, but I don't actually know all the important pieces yet, but when I'm done and hang, so we'll do one interview and it'll take an, anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour to sometimes 90 minutes. And then we'll debrief and, and put together your story afterwards for another 60 to 90 mm-hmm. minutes where we codify all the data of what was pushing you, what was pulling you, what was the anxiety, what was the habits, what was the timeline, like all the detail of it. Where most people try to pull themes out, what we realize is that 
everybody's story is uniquely different, but at some point in time, they actually have very common mechanisms. And so when we can see the common mechanisms, we can make it happen. And so it requires, to do jobs requires, one is no hypotheses. It requires the fact of being able to uh, codify and, and hear what people, what we call the intent versus what they say. Mm-hmm. So, so in some cases, we're listening to how people say it, not just what they say. So, boy, that was really good. Mm-hmm. When they go down, it's like we, your next question should be like, well, so what was wrong with it? Versus, boy, it was really good. Yeah. And when they go up, it's like, oh, what do you like most about it? But if you're not listening to the intent behind what they're saying, and, the, and you go to the um, transcript, the transcript doesn't carry all that other information yeah. in it. And so it's paying attention, it's listening, and it's understanding what we would call intent, and then it's understanding causality. Mm-hmm. And it's literally pattern recognition on top of it. So it is, it is as, as much as the concepts are simple, I think the skills to actually do it is, is more difficult. And I think the fact that it takes repetition to learn. Yeah, yeah. And so because we're better at personas, think of personas. Personas are actually just accumulation of aggregated attributes mm-hmm. of somebody who does not exist. Yeah. And so I can tell you about that person, but I can't tell you about how that person is going to make a decision in this moment. And so it's really useful for marketing because that's how they buy media. Mm-hmm. How old are they? Where, you know, what are their income? I know, where do I target? But from a from a developer perspective, I've got to cause these things. And so I need to actually know way more detail than who they are. I have to know how they behave and what causes them and what context are they in when it causes them to say, today's the day I'm going to sell my car or download a new app or stop using Gmail. That's a great segue to my um, last question, which is, what would you recommend uh, a manager? What the question is more about what what would you say to a manager that is just um, trying to innovate in this space? What what would you recommend him to think about and probably do for the next month or three months? <laughs> so to be honest, uh, um, as a manager, I might actually start by thinking about my team mm. and what progress do the individuals want to make? Okay. How do I help them make progress? Because it's kind of like as you're the manager, you're the teacher. And they're the students. And so the notion here is what progress do they want to make? And, and how do you actually make sure that you're motivating them? Because what you start to realize is nine times out of ten, a manager is actually, you know, meetings and managers are the things that interrupt innovation the most. Mm-hmm. And if you have a team that actually you trust, you have to check in with them less. And they know when to reach out to you to help, yeah. right? My, my big thing right now is I'm doing a book with Ethan Bernstein and Michael Horn around the fact is, is that employees hire companies mm. more than companies hire employees. Mm. And so figure out why people hired your company mm-hmm. and figure out how they hired your team. Why did you come to this team? And help them make progress, and they will help you make progress on projects. Oh, so you can think about it the product way, but I would say people – as I'm finding that people are at the core, really good people are at the core of really good innovation. Mm-hmm. You've been uh, also writing a book on sales, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just wrapping that one up. So, so I'm doing that book on sales as well. So I, uh, <laughs> um, I, I found a company called Scribe Media that's that helped me kind of uh, gather my thoughts, and then I can speak to them, and then they can write the chapters for me. Okay. So that's kind of the way the, the book process mm-hmm. works. 
but that but the the big thing is is Clay and I have been talking about it for years. Of why are there no sales professors? Mm-hmm. You know, you go you go to the top business schools in, in, in the world, if you will, and why is there no sales class? And most of them will say, well, it's kind of like why we don't teach accounting at, at, at business school. It's like, well, you should know accounting before you get there. It's like, yeah, but sales is the single hardest thing to do in any business. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not only hard when you're an entrepreneur, but it's hard even you know, when, you're, when you're, you know, running a big corporation. Mm-hmm. And so part of this is, is uh, so I took the, and the, one of the conclusions was is there's no quote, sales theory. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no foundational pieces in which you can build sell, sales on because sales is taught as a set of techniques. Mm-hmm. And so I took the jobs be done kind of uh, theory and flipped it on its head and kind of said, look, how about we actually just understand how people buy? If we understand how people buy, then we can actually start to talk about how, how to sell based on how they want to buy or the progress they're trying to make. Yeah. And what I would say is, I, so I wrote it for basically three different audiences. One audience is the entrepreneurs, because at some point they start to realize I got to sell investors. I've got to be able to, you know, get employees. I have to be able to help to make progress in my company. I have to do these kinds of things. So I have to actually have a different lens around yeah. it. And so part of this is to go to the uh, tech stars and the Y combinators and help people like that. The second is really to help business schools, right? And, and be able to actually um, help teach in that perspective in terms of at least getting sales back into the curriculum. But the third is really for the people who don't think they sell, but they do sell. And my, my example here is a, is a nurse. A nurse sells a rehab program to a patient, mm-hmm. but no nurse wants to sell anything. But a nurse would, is willing to help somebody make progress in their re- rehabilitation of mm-hmm. something. And so can we actually teach this to non-sales people to help them understand, like, whether I'm writing a report, what progress does somebody make from reading my report? Um, Whether it's, you know, I'm calling the help desk for tech support. How do I actually help people make progress in that way? So thinking about sales in a very different way and thinking of sales as as progress. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what the book is about. It's called Demand Side Sales 101, Stop Selling and Help. Help your customers make progress. So it's really kind of focused on that. So it should be out. Um, I've been playing with a few things, but we're going to have an Audible, a Kindle, uh, you know, a print version, and it should all be out. uh, I think right now the the, the target date is early September now. That's really good. And I just want to say thank you very much for the time that you invested in this. And I've learned so much by talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And uh, when the book comes out again, maybe we can have another one. Sounds good. Okay. Be well. Thanks.